Well, I'm sure you'll agree with me just how blessed we are by the depth and giftedness of our music teams. They're so, so great. Thank you. Well, greetings and grace to you. It is always a joy to be with you in the Word of God. And I'm particularly excited this morning to finish, uh, although... I think if the Lord wills and if we ever go through the Gospel of Matthew, we'll go through these one at a time, uh, a little slower, but um, it's been a great joy to be in the Beatitudes with you. They are a rich portion of Scripture, very practical, uh, very pertinent, and very powerful. And so I want to invite you to turn with me, if you haven't already, to Matthew chapter 5, as we look at the final two of eight Beatitudes. And if you're taking notes, which I know many of you are, I want to tell you that these Beatitudes are split in two, obviously, one corresponding to the other. We'll see first in verse 9 that we, Christians, are those who have received irrevocable adoption in verse 9 of Matthew 5. And then we'll see second later on, that we, Christians, are those who have received an unshakable safe haven. An unshakable safe haven. And so, let's just read the Beatitudes again. We know that these Beatitudes are not something that we do so as to be saved. We are saved by faith and by faith alone, apart from any works Faith in the Lord Jesus. The Beatitudes are who we are far more than what we do. They're who we are, who we have become by grace. And so let's read these together, beginning in verse 2. He, that's Jesus, opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is, blessed are those who are so innately aware that they have no spiritual resources of their own, that they lean solely and wholly upon Jesus Christ and His spiritual resources for them. For theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. That is, blessed are those who grieve over their own sin, who mourn over their own sin because they and they alone will receive receive divine comfort knowing that their sin has been nailed to the cross, that they'll bear it no more because the Lord Jesus bore it for them on their behalf. Verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who have their power and their passions under the control of the Holy Spirit of God, it'll be them and them alone who will inherit the millennial kingdom and then the new heavens and the new earth. Blessed are those, verse 6, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. That is, those who have within them a desire for greater and greater holiness, that they haven't pressed pause, that they're not, they haven't just stopped. They're not the frozen chosen. They're, they're, keep, they're pursuing greater and greater holiness in their life day to day. They'll be satisfied. Why? Because they've come to know that 
Christ is their all in all. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That is, those who are innately aware of the abundant mercy that they have received from God, that they dare not play the hypocrite and withhold mercy from another person. It'll be that kind of person who receives not the chastening hand of their heavenly father, but endless, ceaseless blessing and comfort from their heavenly father. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. That is, those who have received by grace and the love of God a, a new heart. A heart that was washed clean. It'll be they and they alone who shall go to heaven and lay hold of that beatific vision. They will see God who is invisible spirit. They will go to heaven and see God in the face of Christ. And then our passage for this morning, verses 9 and 10. Blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that concludes the Beatitudes. But Jesus says in verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you. And falsely say all kinds of evil against you. Because of me. Our Lord says rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad because when that happens to you, your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Father, we come before you acknowledging that it is a tremendous joy in a world full of falsehood and lies to open up the truth of the Word of God. And Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit of God. Father, would you give me clarity of mind, of mouth, an unction from on high? Would you use this message to sanctify we your saints, and to draw lost sinners to yourself. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the good shepherd that he is. Thank you that he is God. We worship the one true and living God amidst the plethora of false gods. Lord, we are your children we're thankful for adoption into your family. We thank you that we worship the creator of the entire universe. And we thank you that you have blessed us with these graces, these beatitudes. Help us to lay hold of them more. Help us to live them out more. Help us to lay aside sin that so easily entangles us and prevents us from living out what you've blessed us with. Aid our time together, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you know that the word blessed means happy. It means happy, you know that. 
But it doesn't mean happy like the world uses happy, you know that. The world uses happy so flippantly and it's just based on external occurrences. You might be happy if your sports team wins. You might be sad if they lose. But happiness for the Christian is deep-seated. It is ours. We've already been given happiness in the Lord Jesus. And the Beatitudes are how we lay hold of that true path to greater happiness, greater blessedness as a Christian. We've been given so much. And as we go through these final two Beatitudes and conclude our series in the month of August, I want us to consider, number one, as I said, that we are those who have received irrevocable adoption. Irrevocable adoption. I want you to look again at verse 9. Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons or daughters of God. Now, as we go through this first beatitude, blessed are the peacemakers, and we consider what it means to be a happy, blessed peacemaker, I want us to consider the source of this peace, the sustaining of this peace, and The severance of this peace. First, the source. You see, God the Father is the God of peace. We're told in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. God the Son is called the Prince of what? Peace. In Isaiah 9, 6. And God the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Peace in 2 Corinthians And so the source of our peace and our peaceableness, if you will, is the triune God who indwells us. We are indwelt by the Spirit of Christ. We are indwelt by the Spirit of God. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We are indwelt by God Himself. We were once, prior to being in Christ, not at peace, nor in peace. And we certainly weren't peaceable. But the God of peace, He came and made His residency within our hearts. Not by anything that we did. Not because we were smarter than our neighbor. But solely by His grace, He came and took up residency within our hearts. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There used to be lots of condemnation. If you're here this morning outside of Jesus... Because you haven't trusted in Jesus, there remains lots of condemnation upon your head. But for the one who simply looked to Jesus as the heaven-sent gift of salvation, the beloved Son, and simply looked to Him and trusted in Him that He was put upon that cross and He was in my place and He rose again, there is now no condemnation for you. That's good news. That's really Really good news. There was once 
An immense amount of condemnation and judgment and wrath upon you. But it's been taken away by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. We were once by nature. Not just by happenstance, but by nature. By our nature, the Bible says, we were alienated from God. And Colossians chapter 1 verse 21 says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds to God because of your evil behavior. One thing I love about Christianity, it is the only religion on the face of this earth that rightly diagnoses the condition of mankind. Every other religion says, oh, but you're good and you you did good things and depending on how many good things you've done is how you will end up. But no, Christianity alone says, no, you did nothing good. In fact, everything you've done has been from a bad motive. All your actions have been sinful. You remember why God destroyed the earth? Because he saw that the intention of mankind's heart was only ever evil continually. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 3 says, All of us also lived among them, that is unbelievers, at one time. We lived like them, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, it says, and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, deserving of judgment. By nature. You never have to teach your children or your grandchildren how to lie. You have to tell them how to tell the truth. By nature, we are corrupt. By nature, we had the devil of this world as our father, not the God of heaven as our father. A man by the name of Jerome. Jerome, he translated the Bible into Latin. He was the first to do that. And he did that way back in the 300s. He said this, quote, We are not born God's children, but we are made so. We're not born born God's children we are made so there is an adoption that happens you see the children of this world are objects of wrath there's no peace in being an object of wrath the children of this world are hostile in their mind and by children I don't just mean infants and children I mean adults as well they are hostile in their mind there's no peace in being hostile towards God in your mind They are engaged in evil acts. There's no peace in that. We were ourselves under the wrath of God due to our hostility toward God. Never ever think that unbelief is neutral. It is always active, actively hostile against God. We were engaged in sinful conduct, but by grace, (laughs) by grace and by grace alone, we've been made the children of God and we in being made the children of God, the Bible says we receive peace. That's the source of peace. We receive peace. Listen to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 to 15. Let me read it for you. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood, the shed blood of Christ. 
For he, listen to this, he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace, who made both groups, that is, Jew and every other ethnicity, Gentile, made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, the hostility, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two ethnicities into one new man, thus establishing what? Peace. Establishing peace. And so peace in our souls and peace in our lives, peace in our standing between God and man and peace between man and man is from God to us in and through the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Are you thankful for Jesus this morning? The king granted us peace. He's like no other king on earth. And then, not only has he granted us peace, he gives us a peaceable spirit. He grants us peace with himself, peace with fellow man, but then he grants us a peaceable spirit. Specifically here in verse 9, a peacemaking spirit. Blessed are the peacemakers. We are peaceful by the grace of God and we are called by God to be peacemakers to the glory of God by the grace of God. Of God. Now, throughout this series, I've said to you that each beatitude builds upon itself. The Puritans used to call the beatitudes the golden ladder that leads to happiness, that leads to happy blessedness. You can think of it that way, a golden ladder that leads to true blessed happiness. The more we enact and lay hold of each one, the happier in Jesus we are and will be. Last Lord's Day, we considered purity of heart. Purity. I want you to see just how linked these two beatitudes, pure in heart and peacemakers, are. I want you to listen to James chapter 3, verse 17, which says this. The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable. The wisdom from above is first, order of priority, pure, and then peaceable. Simply to say, there is no peace without holiness. And to live holy lives must always include peace. And so that's the source. Namely, God in Christ by the work of the triune Godhead into our hearts. But now let us consider how important it is for us to be sustaining peace as Christians. Again, as I said last Lord's Day, this really gets the rubber hitting the road and you can smell it. It gets inside the kitchen. In fact, it doesn't just even get inside the kitchen, it gets inside the saucepan in the kitchen. 
It gets right into our lives here. Because we have been given by God peaceable spirits, we can then get to sustaining peace amongst one another. That's the downflow. Just like mercy last week. We've been granted tremendous mercy, therefore we have the ability and we ought to exercise an abundance of mercy to others. We have received peace and therefore we ought have as our motivator to be a peacemaker and have a peaceable spirit. First Peter chapter 3 verse 4 says this, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit. Get this, which is precious in the sight of God. A hidden, gentle and quiet, peaceable spirit, precious in the sight of God. Thomas Watson said of this beatitude, God does not dwell in the rough and fiery spirit, but in the peaceable spirit. I want you to notice that Jesus did not say, blessed are the peacekeepers. Did you notice that? He did not say, blessed are the peacekeepers. He said, blessed are the peacemakers. There is a significant difference. A peacekeeper will capitulate. Mark my words, a peacekeeper will capitulate. They will reflect more of a United Nations leader than a biblical Christian. Whereas a peacemaker will enter into conflict and work out work to bring about restoration. It sounds like a grand paradox, but if you make peace the goal, then you miss what Jesus is saying here. We're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, that God has called us to peace, which means we're not called to create disharmony in our marriages, in our families, in our workplaces, in our church. But here is where the difference between a peacekeeper and a peacemaker comes in. There will be strife at times in each of the places I just mentioned. Marriages, families, workplaces and church. A peacekeeper will be prone to making peace the goal. And if you make peace the goal, then you will then insert all sorts of practices and principles in an attempt to keep the peace. To just settle things down. But remember always that purity precedes peace. Truth comes before peace always. It was Martin Luther who used to say, quote, It is better than that the heavens fall than one crumb 
of truth perish. It's been well said that we must not seek the flower of peace as to lose the diamond of truth. I say that because too often we fall into the trap of making peace the goal or unity the goal. No. Obedience to Christ and commitment to the truth must be the goal, for that is the only thing that results in the kind of unity and the kind of peace that God blesses and which truly makes us happy and blessed. That's the difference. In our zeal for truth, though, we ought to be very careful not to become sons of thunder. You remember those two? The sons of thunder? Luke chapter 9, verse 54, James and John said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? We can be like that. We don't say those words, but we can be like that. No patience or passions. Listen to what Jesus says to them and to us. Very next verse, verse 55. Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. Which is to say, you're being led by your passions and not by the true spirit of Christ. Peacemaking is hard. Peacemaking often gets personal. It often requires going down into the pain and sometimes because we want to avoid the pain, we avoid the peacemaking at all costs. But no, no, Jesus says, and we've got to trust him here, the happy person is the peacemaking person. But we need to understand this. Peace is not always possible. It's not always possible. Before we reach that conclusion that peace is not always possible, we better exhaust every avenue and option afforded to us. God knows peace amongst his people is not always possible. And so he says in Romans chapter 12 verse 18 to us, if possible, so far as it depends on you, Be at peace with all men. So, if possible, implying that it's not always possible. So far as it depends on you, implying that there is much dependent upon you. So, don't think much of what they're not doing. Think much of what you need to do. Do you understand? To be at peace with all. There's so much to say about that right here, but time doesn't allow. But think of it like this. When you're a peaceable person, not one who loves to keep conflict just going perpetually on and on. When you're a peaceable person, God says you'll be happy. 
God loves his children and he wants his children to be happy. And he says, just be a peaceable person. Don't let the conflict go on and on. Don't be a dog to a bone. Be a peaceable person. And in Proverbs 11 verse 17, God says this. A person who is kind, peaceable, benefits himself. But a cruel person, angry and contentious, hurts himself. So from a practical, personal viewpoint, to not desire peace nor work for peace is to be of no benefit to yourself let alone God and His glory. A person who is kind and peaceable, peaceable benefits himself. A peaceful person will bring in peace. That's what will happen. Psalm 133 verse 1 says... Behold how good and pleasant. Not just good, but how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in harmony, in peace. As we keep thinking about sustaining peace, let us never fail to bring to mind the prayers of our Lord Jesus to his heavenly Father, John chapter 17, verse 11, Jesus prayed, I am no longer in the world, yet they, that's we, are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Then in verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world, out there, may believe that you sent me. That is to say, there is something very powerful to the watching world when we live in peace with one another. Then in verse 23, Jesus continues to pray to his father, I in them and you in me, so that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. Again, powerful testimony when we are in peace and of one heart and of one mind. And therefore, the opposite is true. Isn't it? The opposite is true. A really bad thing, a really bad testimony, when we are not in peace and we are not of one heart and one mind. And so, let us not ever think light about peace that we share with God and with each other. After all, the Bible tells us that Jesus shed his own blood in agony for it. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 20 says this, Through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made 
peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. To be at peace is all over the Bible, isn't it? It was often on the mouth of our Lord Jesus. You know, in Mark chapter 9, verse 50, he says this, Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Relationships can get messy, right? They can. They do. And they will. But this is where this beatitude is so crucial to you and I. It's better to have a theology of suffering, they say, before you suffer. It's a really good idea for you and I to have a theology of peacefulness before strife comes. Because relationships can get messy, but if we have a peaceable spirit and if we take to heart this beatitude and words like Proverbs 20 verse 3 which says this, keeping away from strife is an honor. Keeping away from strife is an honor. When we do that, we begin to live at peace and we begin to truly live as happy, blessed peacemakers. You see, we must be those who are not only peaceful in our spirits, but also those who work for peace among others. After all, the body of Christ is the body of Christ. And if we see a joint out of joint, if it's dislocated, we work for healing and realignment, right? There's one more aspect to the sustaining of peace. It's the standing and contending for the faith. It's standing and contending for the lordship of Jesus Christ over his church. It's the standing for the truth of the gospel. You know, doing that is not against peacemaking and being peaceable. We must not equate contending for the faith and contending for the church as though that is creating division and hindering peace. Oddly enough, when some sort of false teaching comes along or some kind of extension by another sphere into the sphere of the church or one causing division becomes apparent, the minister and the elders can be lambasted for disturbing the peace when in actual fact they are seeking to maintain the peace by maintaining the order of priority which is the purity of the church and the doctrine of the church. Purity always precedes peace. R.C. Sproul in his commentary on this beatitude said this, quote, Our task is not to work out a compromise and cry, peace, peace, when there is no peace, like in Jeremiah's day. We can mistakenly think that peace is more important than truth and righteousness. Asi said, to sacrifice purity for the sake of peace is nothing but carnal, false peace. End quote. 
For certain, though, as we stand for truth, as we stand for Christ and the church, we ought not be arrogant and we ought not be contentious. We are called to be ambassadors for Christ, who is himself the Prince of Peace, who is himself the Lord over the church. And navigating that can be really hard. Really hard. But God has called us to be peacemakers and God has called us to peace. Lastly, let's consider severance to peace. This is important. It's important to consider what destroys peace amongst us. If peacemaking is so blessed, what destroys peace is important to consider. We need to identify that there are things inside of us and there are things outside of us that dismantle and sever peace. On the inside is our own pride. Our own pride. Proverbs 28 verse 25 actually says this. He who is of a proud and arrogant heart stirs up strife. You see, strife often involves two parties. Two parties can often be too prideful to yield to each other. Yield to each other. Thomas Watson said here, quote, When the wind of pride gets into a man's heart, it causes sad earthquakes of division. The poet's feigned that when Pandora's box was broken open, it filled the world with disease. When Adam's pride had broken the box of the original righteous state, it has ever since filled the world with debates and dissensions. End quote. It would be, therefore, would it not, the epitome of foolishness in my heart and the epitome of foolishness in your heart not to think that there is pride somewhere blinding you and I and causing you and I big problems on whatever side of a contentious issue we fall. We need, therefore, humility. Humility. For it is humility that will bind us together, Thomas Watson said, in peace. Sometimes the path to humility is hard and long because of the defense attorneys in our own heart. You know the pain of being brought to a humble state, acknowledging that you were wrong. Maybe you didn't see things right. We need humility. After pride, another thing inside of us is there can be envy in our hearts. Envy. Envy is a key stirrer to strife. Envy, jealousy. 1 Timothy 6.4 says, Out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, and evil suspicions. The Apostle Paul here ties together envy and strife. He says that's intrinsically linked. And there's another thing that severs peace. And it's something very important for us to grasp. 
It's what the Puritans would call credulity. Credulity. Credulity is the idea of believing something or someone too easily. I've watched this happen. Someone just believes something immediately and easily and division and dissension occurs. It describes the person who listens to gossip and then just receives it as fact. Look, nothing ruins peace among a church or a family like gossip. Gossip is a big problem and gossip needs to cease in the life of the Christian in any local church. It's a sin to gossip. It is anti-peacemaker to gossip. Maybe that's a good way for you to define gossip now is gossip is anti-peacemaking. But it's also a sin to listen to gossip. To listen to gossip. To have credulity or to be credulous. Is to immediately just receive something about someone because you were told it. Let the world play that disastrous game. May you and I as Christians cease from such a terrible thing. Jesus died for peace among his people. One commentator said here, As it is a sin to be a tale bearer, so is it a sin to be a tale believer. Gossip and slander and the receiving of gossip and slander sever Precious blood-bought peace. And so we need to turn away from pride and envy and gossip. We need to be peacemakers, to be of a peaceable heart and mind. Because to be so and to do so is to evidence that we have and we will receive the reality of the end of this beatitude, verse 9. We shall be called sons and daughters of God. We're adopted children. And therefore, we reflect the Father when we live as peacemakers. I grew up without my father, for the most part, anyway. And yet my mum would often tell me when she was alive, you not only look more and more like your dad, but you have the same mannerisms as your dad. Never been around him, but... And that's one of the uncanny things of life, isn't it? We see our kids or the kids of others. They have the same mannerisms as their parents. There's something deeply entrenched in our biological makeup that causes the muscles and the expressions and the mannerisms to function down through the lineage. Well, the same is true. And the same must be true of we who are God's children and have God as our Father. He's the God of peace and purity. We need to be peaceable and pure ourselves. We are irrevocably God's children by adoption. And therefore, may we be committed to that blessed happiness of not simply seeking peacekeeping by some sort of compromise, but by peacemaking, by commitment to the truth in love. And so that's the first beatitude. 
Let's move very quickly to the final one. The final one, as we see, number two, those who have received the safe haven of the kingdom. In verse 10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Theirs and theirs alone is the kingdom of heaven. I've mentioned throughout our little series that King Jesus came with a little bag full in our village of eight grace gems. Some of them were covered in mud when you got them. Some of them were quite clear and the rest of them were everything in between. Well, by grace and by now, as you've thought carefully about what was preached on each beatitude, each Lord's Day, I'm praying that in each of our lives, they're shining just a little brighter. That's important. But this last gem, this final beatitude, I want you to know when, when you opened up this and you get these gems and you open up the bag and you look down at this eighth one, you notice that it's unlike all the others. Because when you look at this one, it contains a tinge of red. Blood red. It's a blood diamond, if you will, not via corruption down in the mine, blood red via the martyr of the saints. That's what this little gem is, and it's yours too. This final grace gem really is the touchstone of all others. If you know what a touchstone is, it's, it's, you use it to compare it to all the others. This is the final touchstone. This is the outcome and byproduct of living out all the other gems, all the other beatitudes. This is the reality for so many Christians down through history. They were truly beatitude believers. Beatitude believers. And they were persecuted for being beatitude believers. And so many of them, not all of them, but so many of them lost their lives. Or lost their limbs. Or lost their children. And many still do. I want you to see right away that this final beatitude does not say the Christian is blessed having been persecuted for anything. That's not what it says. Many people throughout human history from many faiths have been and are persecuted. Many people have been on the receiving end of pain and loss for doing evil things and even just living their life. But notice Jesus says the blessed person is the person who is persecuted, look there, for righteousness' sake. For righteousness' sake. You know, it's been well said, and I agree with it. To the extent you live out the first seven beatitudes will be the extent to which you experience the eighth. I remember Steve Lawson walked in a preaching class one day. He said, the problem with preachers is no one wants to kill them anymore. And I thought to myself, okay, yeah. Is it the problem with 
many Christians that no one wants to kill them anymore. Well, you can run too far with that, but the point is the same. To the extent you live out the seven Beatitudes will be the extent to which you will experience the eighth. Because as righteousness, that is, as holiness in your life increases, the more you will be at odds with this unholy and unrighteous world. Persecution is not a possibility for the Christian. It is a certainty. Though, the level of persecution will be determined by the time in which you live and the context in which you live and certainly how you live. But you will experience some level of persecution. God allots, God assigns persecution to all His children. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 says, Yes, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Read the book of Acts. Read the epistles. Read church history. Read the voice of the martyrs website. Christians have always been persecuted. And more often than not, it is done by the governing authorities. When persecution comes into your workplace, it's nearly always been set down in some way upstream by the governing authorities. When persecution comes into the church, it has nearly always been set down in some way upstream by the governing authorities. John MacArthur said in his commentary on this beatitude, quote, as long as people have no reason to believe that we are Christians, at least in obedience to Christ, we need not worry about persecution. But as we manifest the standards of Christ, we will share in the reproach of Christ. End quote. When we're living out the Beatitudes, which really is what it means to be a Christian, what it means to follow Jesus, we'll be at odds with the God of this world, namely Satan, and we will be the objects of his scorn. And when the world, who is, we are told in 1 John 5.19, is under the sway and the control of Satan, it ought not surprise us then when persecution comes. But here is the kicker. We too often either go looking for a fight or we do everything we can to avoid one. That's, that's the general posture. We either just go looking for a fight cantankerously or we do everything we can to avoid one both is unfaithful to the Lord the servant of the Lord is not to be quarrelsome and woe to you when all men speak well of you both are in the Bible both are true we are not to go looking for a fight and yet when we live for Christ as beatitude believers. What Jesus is emphasizing here is the fight will come to you. And when the fight comes and you fight, they'll say you're not being peaceable. No, you're being faithful. And then in verse 11 and 12, beautiful words, you'll be insulted You'll be persecuted. They'll falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. 
for your reward in heaven is great. You're going to go to a kingdom, a safe harbor. Jesus is saying here, be willing to suffer persecution, even the loss of your own job, the loss of your possessions, even your own life, because yours is the safe harbor of the kingdom. And so let's end this series. Let's end this series by very quickly turning to the book of James, just to read James chapter 3. Really important we end this series in the Beatitudes by looking at James chapter 3. Lisa sent this passage to me from Africa last night, namely verse 18. But let's read at verse 13 of James 3. Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. But if you have envy, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not be arrogant and so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not which comes down from above, but is earthly, natural, demonic. For where envy, jealousy, and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder, no peace, and every evil thing. Verse 17. But the wisdom from above is first pure, truth, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. And look at this. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. We are poor in self, but rich in Christ. Verse 18 is to say this, we do righteousness. We fully commit to Christ no matter what, but we do so and we must do so in a peaceful way. Righteousness has been sown in us. Therefore we must sow peace. Look. We're done. We're poor in self. And yet rich in Christ. We are ever seeing our own sin. And confessing it to God. We are meek. We have power and passions under control. We have greater holiness as our desire. We work to sustain and not sever peace. And when persecution comes, and it will come, we do not shrink back. We stand and we act out of our stand for Christ in a peaceful way. This is the way of Christ and this is the path to the saints' true happiness. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for your word. We truly thank you for your word. Lord, you make yourself known and evident, present amongst us from what we look at Lord's Day to Lord's Day. It's astonishing, really, your providence 
And so, Father, prepare us to be peaceful, prepare us to be persecuted, equip us with suffering graces to rejoice and be glad, knowing that in heaven our reward is great. Help us to always remember that this has been what people and prophets and Christians have experienced who came before us. Thank you for bankrupting us of spiritual resources and blessing us with the kingdom. Thank you for giving us eyes to see our own sin and comforting us as we confess our ongoing sin to you. Thank you for granting us meekness. Help us to be more and more meek about having our passions under control. Give us greater hunger for, for holiness, realizing that in Christ we'll be satisfied and in him alone we'll be satisfied. Bless us with greater mercy towards others and greater purity in our heart. And Lord, help us to lay hold of greater peacemaking abilities. Father, we pray for anyone here who hasn't yet trusted in the Lord Jesus. Would they do that today and lay hold of the blessed happiness that only you can bring. And Father, we thank you that you've made us happy in Jesus. Thank you for sending your beloved son. King Jesus and all God's people said.